The conflict of politician judges using traffic cameras to catch speeders. And passenger rail moves down the track towards Columbus, but only slowly. These topics and more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Joe Hallett, Senior Editor for the Columbus Dispatch, Joseph Moss, Chairman of the Ohio Hispanic Coalition, and Mark Weaver, Republican Strategist. Welcome to Columbus on the Record. The U.S. Supreme Court this week heard a case that could directly affect, affect how Ohio legal matters are decided. The Supreme Court will decide when elected judges should recuse themselves when campaign supporters come before them. Of course, Ohio elects its judges, and those judges rely on campaign contributions to get elected. And when you start running for Ohio Supreme Court, you're talking some big money coming from some big players who are often before the court. Joe Moss, you're an attorney. You've run for judge. Yes. How do you solve this problem? Is there a conflict of interest there inherent in politicians well, and judges? I think certainly there is an appearance of a conflict of interest. And I, and I think that Justice John Paul Stevens, uh, quoting uh, uh, Potter Stewart a long time ago, said, you know, I, I guess I, I know it when I see it. And that's the problem. But, you know, this is an issue that has been around since 1787, the argument as to whether judges should be elected or some sort of an appointment uh, process. And the uh, election of judges actually began to happen around in the uh, Jacksonian uh, era. And Ohio is one of those states that arose subsequent to that uh, era. So that's what we have here. I happen to think that the Supreme Court may very well take some action and give some guidelines to the states on this. So will they set a limit? Will they? bar judges from sitting on cases in which they've received campaign contributions? Well, it's an interesting case that they took up. Most election law is state law, and most uh, law surrounding whether judges are elected or appointed are state law. And here's the Supreme Court, a federal court, trying to weigh in. I think what they'll do is they'll try to resolve this case, which is a particularly egregious set of facts out of West Virginia. Nobody has alleged anything like this side of facts happening here in Ohio. When we elect judges, which the voters of Ohio have affirmed now a few different times, there's going to be always someone who argues that this judge took a contribution from this lawyer. My view is the best way to sort it out is let the voters have the information, have all the contributions be reported, and if they think something was done inappropriately, they can vote that judge out the election. I think that's a good idea. Uh, in this West Virginia case, it, it almost appeared to be a, a quid pro quo, a, a clear one. Uh, in Ohio and other states, it's usually not that clear cut. I mean, judges raise a lot of money, especially for Supreme Court. We had Justice Stratton raise $3, three million for her reelection campaign, and she filed a brief in this federal case um, saying that, you know, appellate judges also can be influenced uh, those who don't take political c contributions. Um, but what we have, people fund these judicial campaigns on the basis of philosophy, and we can see that it works. Uh, in the 1980s, we have a, had a Democratic Supreme Court majority, and if right down the line, their cases favored labor unions and plaintiffs. Now we've got an all-Republican Supreme Court, and right down the line, their cases favor insurance companies and businesses, and they go against plaintiffs. So the Chamber of Commerce, the unions, they fund judicial candidates who are philosophically in tune with them, and I would submit get a payback for it. 
So is that why people contribute to judicial campaigns? Joe, is, well, it, you is know, it philosophy or is it to influence potential decisions down the road? I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to mention that I agree with Joe in, in great part, but I disagree at the lower levels, at the uh, municipal common pleas and even at the courts of appeal. Because there, the decisions are made, certainly with respect to candidates, with respect to who it is that can raise the money, not necessarily because of political philosophy, but possibly because of political connections. And that's the problem at that level. Why not just have an automatic recusal if a campaign con contributor comes before you as a judge? What will happen is you'll have people who want to get a judge recused. They'll give a donation to that person in the hope that he side. or she will get off the case. What's interesting is Ohio changed course in 1996. Prior to 1996, people didn't donate to independent groups. They donated to Supreme Court candidates who were then responsible for their own message. But in 1996, by limiting how much you could donate to a Supreme Court candidate, like money, like water, money will find its way in. The money moved to independent groups mm -hmm. who were not responsible for their uh, message the way a Supreme Court justice or a candidate is. Now, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, is, is really frowned on limiting, I mean, to a great degree, how much money you can give to a campaign because it's free speech. But if there was ever a race where you could have the argument that a publicly funded campaign would, would have merits and eliminate the private money, it would be for a judge. Is that a well, possibility? The Supreme Court has upheld the constitutionality of contribution limits. They yeah. have struck down the constitutionality of expenditure limits, uh -huh. which was part of the 96 change as well, but which got struck down in the Suster case. I still believe take the caps off, make everything reported, and then hold the candidates responsible for their message because they've got a law license that they need to have protected. We're skirting the whole issue here, too, of independent uh, expenditures in judicial races. Uh, Chamber of Commerce, labor unions can weigh in with vast sums of money for TV advertising, advertising in support of a judge, uh, Republican or Democrat, and have influence. And how do we then know that that judge might not be beholden to that side? That's right, because the thing about money, I mean, this money is going to advertising. It's, it's the issue of name recognition. So that's what you're really buying after all. And for, and, and for those who think merit selection is the fix, recently Tennessee moved to merit selection, and after the politics that happened behind closed doors, they went back to electing judges because of that very problem. And, and there is an interesting point there, and I'm glad that you brought it up, and that is with, with the alternative with the appointment. What happens is that it shifts the balance of power either to the, to the chief executive, because he or she is the one appointing the judges, or possibly to the legislature. There are one or two states in the legislature, the one who does the appointment. So. In essence, the, the balance of power shifts. And then you get political favoritism and all that stuff that comes into play with the appointment of a judge. Yes. Okay, our next topic. There is no real public campaign, just some private griping mostly, about the downside of term limits. But those gripes seem to be getting a little louder. Currently, state lawmakers are limited to eight consecutive years in office. Supporters say the limits ensure new blood. Opponents say the limits expel beneficial legislative knowledge and force lawmakers to raise a lot of money and cut deals to win leadership roles. Joe Hallett, Speaker Budish, House, a GOP, House Minority Leader, Batchelder, both support four more years, extending the limits to 12 years. Is that going to go anywhere? Maybe. Maybe this time, because there's a lot of support for it. Probably if you ask all 132 members of the General Assembly, they'd say, yeah, I'd like to have four more years on my term. Because being a lawmaker is very complicated business. You come into a state with more than two dozen departments and agents and many more agencies, a $54 billion budget, 
and it takes you a, a while just to find the bathrooms in the state house. And so by the time lawmakers uh, really begin to understand this very intricate state budget and how to deal with all the departments and all that, they're gone. And so I, I think uh, it makes a lot of sense to extend the, the term limits by four years. It would take a vote of the people because uh, the people in 1992 limited by constitutional amendment the uh, terms to, um, to eight years. Right now on the Finan House Finance Committee, um, which is dealing with Governor Strickland's $54 billion budget, only eight, or I, I should say, eight of the 31 members are freshmen and nine are in their second term. The, it's, it takes a lot more time to figure it out. Mark, are the voters going to go for it? They're not. Here's what we know. A vote of the legislature, it will pass overwhelmingly. A vote of the populace, it will fail overwhelmingly. I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's just something we've seen happen over and over again. What's ironic here is term, uh, term limits in 1992 was a a result of frustration voters felt about how politicians were carrying out their duties. Now here we are 16 years later, voters are frustrated with the way politicians are carrying out their duties and so term limits is going to be hard to get repealed and voters are going to continue to be frustrated with the status quo. And I agree with Mark. I don't think that it's going to be a successful campaign. Uh, at the same time, I have never liked term limits. I think all that that does is that it shifts the expertise to the lobbyist and rather than having uh, legislators that are familiar with uh, particularly technical topics. I, ahead, I don't know. I, I, I think that the voters might be persuaded not to get rid of term limits, but to extend them another four years. I think there will be a lot of support for it. Some of the traditional groups that uh, supported term limits in 1992, I think, have seen the effect of them. And I'm not sure the business community, the labor unions, and others won't be solidly behind a, an extension. How would you sell people on that, Mark? If you were to run the campaign to extend term limits, what would be your message? Well, I've been involved in focus groups where we've talked about this. Yeah. The only way to do it would be to say, we really should get rid of our lawmakers. We just shouldn't get rid of them in eight years. We should get rid of them in 12 years. Because <laughs> you're not going to make the case in this environment that your legislator is your friend. So they're bad, just not that bad. That's, that would be the only way to sell it. <laughs> the bottom line is, do we have better government with term limits than we had back in the early 90s, late 80s. Um, and would we have better government if we didn't have the term limits? Well, if that were always the question, uh, I've, I've never liked them. I, I would like to see them repealed completely, uh, as uh, certainly at the federal level. But uh, again, and I hope that you're right, Joe, but I, I think well, Mark I may think be right. I think more than term limits, we need apportionment board reform. We have, uh, have been enduring a General Assembly full of ideologues on the left and the right. The people will hower in the center, and they're not getting that kind of centrist representation out of our state government. And the apportionment board, they set the legislative districts, and they can really decide who has an advantage in any particular and, legislative district. And they've made these districts so safe that the action is all in the primaries. So if you're in a safe Republican district, you run to the right, and if you're in a safe Democratic district, you run to the left. And uh, the most liberal or the most Democrat gets elected in the general election, and that's who we have representing us in, in, the, uh, in the General Assembly. Okay. Topic three. Red light cameras are here. We see them around town, and some have received uh, in the mail a nice picture of their car with a nice bill. Now state transportation officials want to use cameras to catch speeders in some construction zones. Violators would be fined up to $250. 
officials say this is about safety, not about raising money. But Mark Weaver, if it's about safety and not about raising money, why is it in the budget bill? Yeah, these things mm -hmm. tend to come up when there's money needed. These are really revenue uh, chasers, not so much safety thing. Will it have secondary safety effect? I think that's right. But psychologists will tell you if you want to have a change in behavior, you have to give the reinforcement at the same time the behavior happens. For example, your child's about to run in the street. You tell them, no, don't run in the street, and they remember it. Now, when the bill comes three weeks later for a red light that you ran three weeks earlier, you may not have quite the same reinforcement effect. This is a budget effort to get more money, and if we want increased safety, let's put police on those uh, construction zones and let's pull them over and stop those speeders right then. I have no doubt that it's about revenues uh, as well. And it's, it's such an impossible thing to fight uh, anyway. Uh, you know, the machine is there, you've got the photo, may or may not be accurate. I'm, I can't imagine the people being behind it, but nevertheless, the people don't have to be. Uh, Mark is right. It certainly has changed my b behavior. I've been nailed twice by red light cameras on 4th and Nationwide Boulevard, paid the $90 fine. Luckily, it doesn't go on my driving record. But uh, I'm very, very careful now around that area. And the uh, interesting thing about this is, is that this provision was amended in the House so that the red light ticket is only um, operative or can only be given when there are workers in that zone. Yeah. Uh, so if it's at night and nobody's working there, apparently you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I think that's when the doubling of fine kicks in, too. There actually has to be somebody working there. But it's just a zone. This like is not the way we do a good policy. If the problem is safety of construction workers, let's identify a solution that resolves that. In this case, the problem was the state spends too much and needs more money. How else can we get it without raising taxes? Remember, the governor claimed he wasn't going to raise taxes in his budget, but there's been some analysis in the press that it's repeated fee increases, which Governor Strickland is on record saying a fee increase is a tax increase, so the Strickland budget is full of tax increases. About $1.7 billion worth of fee increases yeah. when you include the hospital and the nursing home fees. What's wrong with, with, with raising money on the backs of people who break the law or overstay their parking meter or, you know, or smoke and, and raise health care costs for the rest <laughs> of us? I think we tend to rebel against machines being the ones who identify the, the offense or impose the revenue. And I, and I think that's what we're really talking about, after all. I agree. Our next topic, light rail, or actually heavy rail. Governor Stead Strickland's goal of passenger rail service between Cincinnati, Columbus, and Cleveland is moving ahead, but only slowly. The $2 billion transportation budget passed by the House only includes money to study 3C rail service. There is no firm dollars, no firm dollars set aside for reestablishing rail service in parts of Ohio that don't already have it. Joe Hallett, any chance of Amtrak service coming back to the city of Columbus? I mean, I'm not sure this is fast-tracked and it still could get derailed. So, but uh, I, it's closer than it has been for since we lost passenger service, I think in 1971. Uh, there's stimulus money available to help build this thing. But there are a lot of problems. W w one of the most practical problems is a political problem. The, uh, this, the Republicans want to go very slowly and are very skeptical about this because they think once we have passenger rail, it's going to have to be heavily subsidized by the taxpayers. And the Republicans control the Ohio Senate, so there's got to be something worked out to convince them. The other thing is um, critics are, are calling this um, 
snail rail because I think the top speed of this uh, from the three C corridor would be in the in the seventies, mm. and there would be anywhere from between Cleveland and Cincinnati eleven to thirteen stops. So it would take a while. It would take a while, and a lot of folks will probably just want to hop in their cars and drive there anyway because once they get to Cleveland, yeah. they'll have their car. Yeah. Mark is going to go anywhere. I don't think so. Some people are saying the tickets could be as much as $140 to get to Cleveland from Columbus. The demand is not there. There might be demand for commuter rail. I think there's an argument for that. But the notion of spending $140 to get to, to uh, Cleveland with all those stops along the way will deter many people. And it may just be another uh, uh, boondoggle for government. I, and you know, Joe is right about the subsidy. I looked into this and apparently at no time in history has passenger rail travel really been self-supporting. Either the freight has supported it or government subsidies has supported it. At the same time, it is an opportunity to use the incentives, the, the, um, the, the, the financial uh, support that the federal government is going to be spreading around. So uh, as perhaps it'll give an accelerator effect. 85% of the transportation budget passed by the House goes to highways and roads. Is that a fair percentage given that most of us drive most of the time? Should it be more than 85%, less than 85%? What do you think? I, I suppose it's probably about right, considering that most of us do drive, and I don't see any change in our behavior yeah. any time soon. I mean, I would like to have the option of passenger rail. I, I frankly like the mayor's idea of, uh, of light rail from Polaris all the way to German Village, uh, something I think folks would use. Uh, but uh, I don't know. We're, we're different than Europe. I've ridden the rails in Europe, and you have uh, these countries that are all compact, and it's very convenient and very quick to get from one city to the next. And once you are in the cities, they're not spread out like ours. You know, the center of commerce is kind of all there, quick cab ride. and. Uh, but you get like to Cincinnati, yeah. you know, you go out to the suburbs to do your business or, or wherever. Uh, it just seems like it's not as practical here as it is uh, maybe in Europe or Japan. I or even the East Coast where there's a massive population, cities are perhaps more compact. You need to change the culture a bit. At the same time, I, I think I disagree with Mark. I think this thing might very well happen. What would, if gas was still $4 a gallon today, like mm -hmm. it was in July, would this have a much easier chance of, of passing and, and, and winning over those skeptical folks? But see, in that's the an argument for commuter rail. Mm -hmm. How many people in Columbus have a regular need to be in Cleveland enough to support a train that goes back and forth all the time? There's lots of people in Dublin who have a regular need to be in downtown Columbus, and that would be patronized. But mm -hmm. the notion of lots of people needing to get to Cleveland all the time, enough to support it, I don't think even $4 gas uh, prices would be enough to justify that. So you, you would say intra-city rail versus intercity. Yeah, I would, I would love to have a, a DC type uh, a subway system, um, maybe following 270 where I could hop on a Westville and come down to work and, and have that convenience. The problem is constructing something like that is hugely expensive. I mean, we're yeah. talking billions of dollars. Okay. Our last topic. Here is a modern philosophical question. If a teacher in an online class tells you to spit out your gum, will the teacher know if you refuse? That's probably the least of the education community's concerns as online education becomes more and more common. 
Colleges and universities have been doing it for years. Now it's moving to the lower levels. There are even Internet-based charter schools, but those schools don't fare so well in Governor Strickland's budget. Mark Weaver, you teach law school, grad school. You teach online. Is it a good thing? It is. Uh, through the University of Akron for the last eight years, I've been teaching students in Akron while I'm in Columbus. It's cutting edge. Uh, Akron was the first one to really jump in with this, and they've become the leader. And it does work now at the K-12 through level. We see these online schools or e-schools, many of whom I've worked with over the years, have great stories about kids who are not suitable for a traditional learning environment are advancing at great paces because of this. The problem is Governor Strickland claims he wants 21st century learning which includes things like online education, yet his budget calls for a 74% cut for these online charter schools, which has got parents around the state outraged because what essentially Governor Strickland is saying is that he knows better than parents what sort of schools they ought to be in. You can't advocate for 21st century learning and then try to gut the, what has been a great experiment for Ohio and makes it a national leader in that area. But isn't there a difference between, treating, between teaching a grad student, a law school student online, in trying to get to a second grader or a third grader who you you might more you might need that more personal interaction. Well remember the model for online learning in the K through twelve is that the parent is a teaching partner. And so the parent is there with the child. The child's not alone you know, watching television for one moment, then on the computer, the parent is the teaching partner, and then they have regular interaction with certified teachers who help that child progress at his or her level. And parents, if it didn't work, wouldn't choose it. And more than 20,000 parents have chosen that in Ohio, yet Governor Strickland is trying to take that away. It's got a lot of people angry. And, and clearly the direction that the governor wants to take the state is with traditional, in the direction of traditional schools. Now, I did take the time to look at a couple of these programs, and quite frankly, they're pretty impressive. You can see why perhaps the performance of the students has been okay, has been at par with students from traditional schools. It's something that I think still needs to be looked at, but the, the, the budget cut is, is yeah, huge. Well, the, the, the administration says one of the reasons for the budget cut is that an, an online school, you don't need bricks and mortar. You don't need to maintain a, a school. You don't need to maintain a building. So your cost should be less. But which is why they don't get any local dollars. They only get the state dollars. So if my, I have two children, if I sent them to an online school, the state dollars would follow, but all the local property tax I pay for schools would stay with their traditional school and not go to the online school. So already these online schools are getting less than a traditional student would, and that makes up for the difference. The governor wants to cut that state support by 74%, which will run online learning out of Ohio, which will take away choice for parents, and which flies in the face of his argument that he wants 21st century learning. Joe, is this a, a sort of a backdoor way to get at charter schools and, as a whole? I mean, the governor's been, it's supportive, but it's not exactly enthusiastic support. Well, hardly enthusiastic. I think Joe is exactly right that the governor wants traditional um, uh, schooling through the public schools. Uh, you know, he's been strongly supported by the teachers' unions. Uh, he has put forth, though, a, a very innovative um, education reform plan. Um, I think you raised a good point about the bricks and mortar. I think uh, lawmakers increasingly will begin to question capital expenditure budgets on colleges, uh, wondering why we need to continue building new buildings and new facilities when more and more students can get educations online. One, one state lawmaker suggested that these internet courses would be great for like AP courses for small districts that don't have a lot of kids. Instead of dedicating a teacher, a teacher's time for three students in an AP history, AP chemistry class, you have a, a video hookup. 
online. That's one good use, but that's not the only good use. Yeah. I was at a rally for East Schools a few years ago, and I met a little girl who'd been horribly burned in a fire. Her mother told me that she tried to go to a traditional school setting, but every day the kids were staring at her, and she wasn't able to learn because she was so self-conscious. She's learning in an e-school because she can be on her own with her parent, advance at her own pace, and there's lots of kids who are just not suited for sitting in a classroom while the teacher deals with 25 or 30 other students trying to get them all to learn. As a teacher, I have trouble. I've got to teach towards the middle. My smart students are bored. My slow students are trying to catch up, and I'm frustrated because I have to pick the middle instead of by individual. E-schools allow for each student to learn at his or her own pace. Okay. That's it. Let's get to our off-the-record comments from our panel, some final thoughts and predictions for the weeks ahead. Joe Hallett, you're up first. Well, uh, Governor uh, Strickland has been dirtied up a little bit in this whole budget debate. There's a lot of editorial boards taking shots at him, and uh, it would seem to embolden John Kasich uh, to want to run against him even more. But I think when he finally steps to the plate, he'll, he'll continue to have some second thoughts. He has not yet created a campaign committee. He will see that he may have trouble raising money from the business community because Strickland is popular. And he'll s look at the polls. And um, I'm not sure it's a slam dunk thing that John Kasich runs. Okay. Joe. Um, Mike President Obama was in Columbus today to uh, swear in the new recruit, new police officers, newly graduated from the academy. And the idea for the visit was, of course, to promote the stimulus package. I have a suggestion to make for all of the chief executives, city, state, as well as President Obama. Start talking about specifics. How is the money going to be used? I would suggest that by doing so, that'll have an immediate accelerator effect to that money even before it gets there. Okay. And Mark. Governor Strickland campaign said he would be a failed governor if he didn't fix school funding. He's changed that phrase now. He says he's fixing schools. The funding part is a billion dollars short. Voters have figured it out. And the, the gap in the Strickland poll numbers is widening very quickly. Okay. That is Columbus on the Record for this week. Don't forget, you can continue this discussion online. Please visit our website, WOSU.org slash COTR. Our question this week, should government subsidize passenger rail service to and from Columbus? We also feature streaming video in case you miss a show or you don't want to wait until Andre Ryu is finished to watch us or it, you were at perhaps at the Ultimate Fighting Championship tonight and didn't get, get a chance to see our show. Check us out online, WOSU.org slash COTR. Thanks for staying up late with us tonight. I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week. Thank you.